Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome again to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly science podcast that discusses everything from molecular medicine to plant breeding to biotechnology on the farm. The goal is not only to feature compelling science told by compelling scientists, but to help you share it as well, as innovation moves to application with communication. Today's guest is Dr. Fred Gemitter. Dr. Fred Gemitter is a professor. He's a plant breeder at University of Florida's Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred, Florida. Now, Dr. Gemitter, he's been a friend and a colleague for a long time. He has been at the center of citrus breeding in the state of Florida for many years and is with us now at a time of unique challenges to the Florida citrus industry. When I first started at University of Florida back in 2002, I would drive the highway from Orlando to Gainesville. And as you would come up the highway, you would see these beautiful, dark green, lush groves on both sides of the highway, uh, covered in orange orbs uh, and beautiful blue sky, full of sunshine. The trees were beautiful, the oranges were gorgeous, and the sky was blue, and it was the backdrop for my new career. It was also really important because it reminded you that you were at ground zero for where fruit came from. You know, we were feeding a nation. This place was the place to be. And fresh fruit and orange juice and other products that came from fruits and vegetables were coming from these fields. Years later, if you take a trip down that same highway, those trees are gone. And in their place are these overgrown weedy fields with the gray skeletons of dead trees. It's cold. It's not the same. It's really sad. They usually also have a for sale sign. A lot of the other ones, you could swear you go, this is where the oranges were, and now it's subdivision. The trees are being destroyed by something called HLB, Wang Lung Bing, also known as citrus greening disease. The disease is an insidious, latent disease that's spread by a bug. 
It's bacteria that moves from tree to tree from this insect that uh, drinks a little bit of sap, gets that bacteria, and then transmits to the next tree. The tree looks perfectly fine for years, becomes slightly symptomatic, and within years is producing very few tiny small fruit that fall from the tree. The problem is that this is a challenge for Florida citrus industry. Without fruit, you can't sustain a, a pipeline of trucks, packing houses, juice plants that sustain 60,000 employees. It's a $10 billion industry. We really do need to do something to solve this problem. So today's talk we're with Dr. Gemitter will address the issue of HLB. But first, we'll talk about citrus domestication. Where does this thing come from? What is citrus? It's not just oranges. We're talking grapefruits, lemons, limes, a whole bunch of other specialty type of citrus products. Dr. Gemitter, his job has been to create, from traditional breeding, those next generations of, of citrus crops that we will find on our store shelves. Now the focus is slightly shifted because he's doing everything he can, along with others in the area, to identify the new genetics that can sustain this industry by producing the next trees with resistance to HLB. So today's interview, Dr. Fred Gemitter from the domestication of citrus, its uh, breeding objectives, and the future of the citrus industry. So this week on the Talking Biotech podcast, it's really a pleasure to be sitting here with Dr. Fred Gemitter. Dr. Fred Gemitter is a professor at the University of Florida um, in uh, the Horticultural Sciences Department. Uh, he's down at the Lake Alfred Citrus Research and Education Center. And um, it's funny that we're in San Diego, California, yeah. <laughs> and we had to go uh, 3,000 miles away to actually sit down together. So <laughs> nice to see you, Fred. Oh, it's good to be here, Kevin. Maybe we can have a beer together later. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, so uh, the main reason I wanted to talk to you is because I already talked to Jude Grosser about citrus um, biotechnology. And what I really wanted to talk to you about was, what is this citrus thing? And uh, what are the many different crop uh, plants and uh, maybe wild species that are under that, under that banner? And then we'll talk a little bit about where it comes from and what are the challenges for contemporary breeding. So that's where we're at today. So, so maybe we could start out by talking about the domestication issue and the wild um, germplasm, where did citrus originate and when did f human beings first bring it under control? Well, we, we uh, are pretty firmly convinced that citrus originated somewhere in Southeast Asia, South Central Southeast Asia. Uh, we're talking about the region of Northeast India, Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, uh, into Southern China, Southwestern China, Southern China. And uh, some lines of, of related citrus uh, actually proceeded to develop up the, the mountain chains toward the northeast into the colder areas of China. So we have a range from very tropical areas and the more tropical citrus species there, and, and it, it sort of evolved to more and more cold-hardy things. Uh, but that's, that's generally considered to be the area. Okay, and so you talk about the uh, coastal species and then tropical species and then things that kind of uh, came about up the mountains. Is, that, uh, is there a huge diversity in the different um, uh, fruit types and other, uh, other characteristics that you find in wild citrus? 
Yeah, there's there's really tremendous diversity. Um, you know, consumers know oranges and mandarins, grapefruits, lemons, and limes. Uh, and some people know about pomelos. Um, but as you, you look at the different kinds of citrus, yeah, it ranges from pomelos, which are, you know, two, three, four kilograms in size, down to things like the kumquats, which are, are incredibly small. Uh, so there's a, there's a big diversity there. And so with uh, the diversity that's there, when did human beings first really uh, start, or what's thought anyway, about domestication? I mean, I assume people would find this uh, tree with these really tasty fruits on it, but is, is that really the story? And about when did that happen, and what do we know about the, uh, the domestication events? Well, what, what we know is, uh, for the most part, speculative, although... Uh, you know, with recent genome sequencing projects and papers that have been published on that, we have some idea of the time at which uh, certain events took place, uh, the, the separation or, or the diversification of species. Um, when we look at citrus, cultivated edible citrus at least, there are three, maybe four primary biological species. Uh, those would be the pumelos, the mandarins, something called citron. Uh, and then there are one or two wild species that have sort of introgressed. Now, all of, or virtually all of the uh, consumer-known kinds of citrus really are introgressions of different members of the biological species. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, if we look at sweet orange, for example, um, based on the information that's been generated, it appears that sweet orange originated as a single tree. There was a single first sweet orange tree, not a, a wild natural species. So it's not a true biological species. There was one, one tree that someone found. And genome sequence analysis has kind of indicated that that uh, tree was an introgression of, of pomelos and mandarins. And it's not a direct F1 hybrid, uh, but a series of different crosses. And, you know, all these things pretty much spontaneously occurred in nature. Somewhere, someday, one very lucky guy, probably about three or 4,000 years ago, probably somewhere in southern China, found the first sweet orange tree. Um, sweet orange has a characteristic that the seeds uh, it produces contain embryos that arise from new cellar tissue. So these are identical to the maternal parent. So essentially cloning by seed, even before grafting, was, was a part of human experience. You know, they could take these seeds and plant them, and so... You know, whether it was a single individual tree or the single individual tree had already been propagated by monkeys or, or other wildlife, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the story of where sweet orange originated. Now, we, uh, we know about grapefruit. Grapefruit is sometimes referred to as citrus paradisi, the only species that ever uh, arose in the New World. But in fact, it's like sweet orange. It's not a species. In the 1500s, you know, the Europeans were traveling around the world, and, and they knew if they took their lemon seeds with them, they'd plant lemons, they'd get lemon trees, and uh, so on, because of that new cellar embryony that I mentioned earlier, the, the cloning by seed. When they got to Southeast Asia and some of the tropical areas, they found these large-fruited citrus, the pumelo, Citrus maxima, good name for a species that makes big fruit. Um, and the European guys took those fruit and those seeds and they brought them to the new world and they planted them all over the place thinking they would reproduce that pomelo. Well, they didn't because pomelo produces zygotic offspring almost exclusively, probably exclusively. And as they looked at all these trees that grew from their pomelo seeds, every seedling tree was different. One of those was the first grapefruit tree. 
and it began to move a little bit in the Caribbean region. In the early 1800s, there was a guy uh, named Count Odette Philippi. Uh, Odette Philippi was an interesting character. Some people have said he was a French nobleman. Other people claim him to be a pirate. Maybe he was both. I'm going pirate. Yeah, a noble pirate. <laughs> um, so he brought grapefruit to Florida, to Tampa Bay, to a place called Safety Harbor. And it was a white-fleshed grapefruit, uh, 50, 60 seeds per fruit. And the good count really liked his grapefruit. He spread it around, gave it to everyone he knew, and it began to spread and proliferate. And so people were growing this large, white-fleshed, very seedy grapefruit in Florida. Similar, perhaps identical to the variety, the old variety known as Duncan. Uh, in the late 1800s, someone was stumbling around the North Lakeland area and stumbled upon a, a white grapefruit tree that had only one or two seeds per fruit. Aha, the mutation for seedlessness. Actually, it's a cytogenetic event, not a single gene mutation. But anyway, so here's a white grapefruit. How cool. No seeds or few seeds. So that became the, the rage in the late 1800s. In the early 1900s, um, someone was slicing through some white grapefruit in the field and they found a branch on a tree when they cut through the fruit inside of the fruit were pink ah wow pink this is even better than white and no seeds so that variety proliferated and in about 15 or 20 years down the road another variety with a blush on the outside the first pink flesh looked just like a white grapefruit from the outside but this uh subsequent find had had a red blush and people call the variety red blush also known as ruby red, and it had slightly deeper red flesh color. And then uh, people began looking for other mutations, and they found deeper red, and they used irradiation, you know, to modify things and, and get better red color and fewer seeds. So the whole point of this long-winded story about grapefruit is that grapefruit, you know, we have a, a historical record of, of what happened. And essentially this is what happened with sweet orange. We just don't have the historical record. Well, that's really cool. So let me recap that just to make sure I get it. Because this has been one thing that over the years, I've seen you give a thousand talks and Jude Grosser give a thousand talks. And I always forget or get confused those four basic species. So it's pumelos and it's a thing called a citron and a thing called a mandarin and then maybe some other kind of mixed bag of potential separate. Something called citrus micrantha. Citrus micrantha. All right. And that every citrus fruit we have, whether it's limes, lemons, grapefruits, whatever, are all some sort of combination of these different genetics. And that the first one that, um, at least the sweet orange, started from a single tree, which is super cool. And, uh, and, and the grapefruit story, which you told, is really, really interesting. And it's great that that's in, in modern times or we can have some. Yeah. The other thing that really struck me as interesting, though, is that you talked about grapefruit and it didn't seem like there's a whole lot different like the changes that you're seeing in the cultivated food product the fresh fruit product aren't happening overnight and it seems like these things are lasting a long time that they're very durable that we still see ruby reds i guess right so what is a as a as a breeder what are some of the big barriers to producing new varieties then and now well, the fact that sweet orange is a commodity, a recognized commodity, and there are a lot of mutations from that original form. You know, we have varieties that mature in October, November in the Northern Hemisphere, and some that mature March, April, May, and 
we have navel oranges. We have oranges that produce anthocyanin, the blood oranges. So all of these changes have sort of been spontaneous mutations, either limb sports or mutations that were recovered from new cellar seedlings. But essentially, an orange is an orange. And so as we think about, well, how can we improve oranges? Uh, we have never been able, really, to improve oranges by crossing, let's say, an early season orange with a late season orange. There are a few reasons why for that. Two basic ones. First of all, uh, is, is the sterility and the fact that oranges mostly reproduce from new cellar seeds. So when you try to make the cross, you're still just regenerating mom. Secondly, if you do recover a hybrid embryo, and we can do this sometimes with tissue culture, you know, go in early and get the hybrid out, and you grow that thing out, we see typical inbreeding depression. The plant is is weaker, less vigorous, less healthy, uh, and if they live long enough to produce fruit, it's most likely that the fruit won't be an orange that the consumer would recognize as an orange. The same is true with grapefruit. Um, Now... In maybe the last 20 or 30 years, citrus breeders have been making certain crosses and producing hybrids that have fruit that are similar to sweet orange. So there's been one one hybrid named Amber Sweet that produced a fruit that was officially declared, legally declared to be a sweet orange, not a sweet orange. It didn't it didn't arise from somatic mutation, but it was a, a regulatory decision. Uh, uh, to call it that, and there were there were political and economic reasons at that time, and that variety really didn't succeed very well. So, so that's that's one of the impediments. You know, you have this narrow description of of what that cultivar type should be, and that's compounded because in the marketplace, you know, the guys who are marketing citrus, they know oranges, they know lemons, they know mandarins, and if you give them something that's doesn't fit neatly into the box. The less clever of these uh, say, you know, we just don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to market it. Um, Other impediments, uh, you know, there's the whole list of things that we we would give in an introductory slide in one of our talks. You know, there's sterility. There's self and cross incompatibility. Uh, Citrus trees have a long juvenile period. So you're waiting three, four, six, ten years before you see the fruit from the cross. Uh, Sometimes when I talk to plant breeding courses, students, you know, I'll I'll compare it to tomato where you can get three or four generations in one year. And I say for citrus breeders, we're lucky to get three or four generations in one career. Uh, And that's a totally different uh, perspective on time and sanity. (laughs) That's something that I think that people really need to understand better when we talk about plant genetic improvement, and especially when we start thinking about biotechnology and ways of, of, of improving plants by adding a gene, this kind of stuff, is that when we're dealing with traditional breeding, my hat's off to folks like you um, and people who deal with tree genetics, because you, if, like you say, you might have three or four good generations in a, in a career. <laughs> and uh, it's like breeding whales or something. I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to get a new one tomorrow. And, and so th- it really shows that uh, it also gives us an idea of, of kind of the glacial pace of breeding, but really is being accelerated by modern genomics tools. And so what are the major priorities for you as a, as a breeder, at least in Florida, for things that you're um, looking for when you're making crosses and evaluating offspring? Well, not only when we're making crosses, but, you know, breeding oranges and grapefruit is sort of a mutational breeding game as well. Um, Right now in the current environment, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the number one target 
for anyone working with citrus in Florida right now is resistance to Huanglong Bing or citrus greening. You know, this is a, a most devastating disease. Um, and that's not something that you, uh, you can jump into and, and have a success story overnight. However, as we've been breeding at, in the UF program for 30 years, Jude and I and Bill Castle, our third partner, um, you know, we've created quite a suite of diverse germplasm. And as this disease has swept through, we've had the opportunity to look at selections that are more tolerant. I, I can't say we have anything that's truly resistant yet. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's been a, a number one priority for the last 10 years. All that being said, um, and given the glacial pace, as you described it, of, of progress in citrus breeding, uh, we've been working and continue to work on a number of other most important attributes. Um, in the world of oranges, which is the, the main crop in Florida, you know, it's a juice business that we're involved in, we've been always looking for uh, better oranges, better quality oranges, oranges that produce better quality juice throughout a longer extended season. Historically, when we were making frozen concentrate, you know, you could just take all your oranges, slap them together in a slurry, freeze them, and, and you'd be all right. But in the past 10, 15 years, not from concentrate juice has been a, a bigger deal. And historically, again, the industry would grow this variety, Hamlin orange, which matured in October, November, December, January. Very productive orange, very productive of, of low-quality juice. Uh, the juice doesn't meet the grade A minimum standard for color. The flavor is acceptable, but it's not anything great. And on the other end of the season, in March, April, May, and June, they'd be harvesting Valencias, which are our premier crop, uh, premier variety. Um, you know, beautiful color, excellent flavor, less productive than Hamlin, but the, the game was saving one or the other, you know, to be able to blend, which is an expensive prospect. So we've always looked to uh, uh, getting better quality throughout the entire season so the storage would be minimized and uh, we've always wanted to move away from Hamlin even though it's a very productive orange it's it's really relatively poor quality and our feeling was if we could have the best quality oranges grown in Florida we would produce the best quality orange juice product and and that would be good for everyone um, so that's been a target with oranges uh, with grapefruit there are you know, redder is better, and we've, we've been looking over the years for uh, grapefruit selections, mutants that have deeper red flesh and better color on the outside, all the while being more productive and uh, producing fruit size that's desired by the fresh market and so on. A big deal with grapefruit in the past 15 years uh, has been the, the grapefruit juice effect, which is something that perhaps there's only been one or two real examples where someone's had a, a bad reaction to medications in grapefruit uh, but grapefruit was the first food where there there was discovered interactions between a, a food product and medications and in this case uh, it's been statins those things that control cholesterol blood pressure medications and so on so this is sort of a double triple whammy because our market for grapefruit generally has been older people not so much younger people and we find older people are more likely to be on these, these medications. And so, you know, the doctors are telling their patients, yeah, don't, you, you can't have grapefruit anymore. Uh, there's some chemicals, there's a family of chemicals called the foranocoumarins that are in grapefruit. And they are responsible for this interaction with drugs. Um, we tried making some hybrids of grapefruit with pumelo. Um, 
and these were triploids. We were interested to make something perhaps a little bit less bitter, a little more sweet, uh, completely seedless, um, red-fleshed. And we made a number of hybrids crossing diploid pumelos with um, tetraploid grapefruits that we had. Uh, Several hundred of these guys. And a few years ago, um, a scientist working at the Florida Department of Citrus um, came and, and talked to me. Paul Cancalon was his name. Uh, and he was studying ferenocoumarin levels in grapefruit in the same varieties grown in different places around the world. But he wanted to look at different cultivars, and he knew we had a collection of things. So I gave him some grapefruit cultivars, and I snuck in a few of our pumelo grapefruit hybrids for him to take a look at those as well. And lo and behold, one of our favorite selections... Uh, came back with incredibly low levels of ferranocoumarins. The most bioactive of those compounds he could not detect. And the others were at like 5 to 10% relative to ordinary grapefruit. So we repeated this a few times, and it, it was a real thing. Um, we went ahead and we did some research with uh, a guy named Dave Greenblatt up at Tufts University where he was feeding different kinds of things to human liver cell cultures mm-hmm. to see how they responded and how the cells responded to different things. And so he fed them some of our, our juice um, and there was no reaction. You know, it was like giving them water. Uh, he tested these things and right there was, there was no reaction. Um, We've released this variety. It goes by the name of UF914 uh, because of the low ferenocoumarin content. Um, But we also did some other things. We worked with Lisa House, who's in the Food Resource and Economics Department, who ran some focus groups. um, And she she presented the concept of uh, a grapefruit type with no drug interaction. And would people be interested in that? And yeah, they were. And she had two groups of people. She had, they had to be citrus buyers, but she had grapefruit lovers and grapefruit non-lovers. And so they all talked about the concept, and it was a good thing. And then she presented the fruit for people to taste. And uh, the people who didn't like grapefruit, when they tasted it, said, you know, wow, if, uh, if grapefruit tasted like this all the time, I'd buy it, you know, because it doesn't have the, the high acidity um, and and the, the strong bitterness. There's an element of bitterness there, so it still satisfies what people think they should be getting with grapefruit, but not so sour, much more sweeter tasting. And we thought, well, then, when we give it to the grapefruit lovers, they're probably not going to like it. But we got comments back like, you know, now I can eat grapefruit and I don't have to put sugar on it. So all these people who love grapefruit, many of them are cheating and you know putting a little extra sugar on it. Um, so we have a variety that really has, I, I think, interesting consumer potential in the U.S. from a flavor perspective alone, and certainly um, in the Eastern Asian market. You know, right now, South Korea is the only country in the world where grapefruit consumption is increasing. And they don't care about the drug interaction thing, but they do care about sour. And uh, they're buying red grapefruit, and what they do with it is they, they chop it to pieces, and they cover it with sugar and syrup and just kind of let it sit there for a while and then they make a tea out of it in the winter or they mix it with some alcoholic beverage and, and have a nice drink um, but for fresh grapefruit they're buying a variety called Sweetie which is not a grapefruit it's another pumelo grapefruit hybrid that's being grown in Israel and it's white fleshed now the Asian market prefers red red has all kinds of good connotations 
So they would rather have a red fleshed grapefruit. Now we've talked with our industry, um, and they haven't quite gotten off of square one yet. But the South African industry, which is the largest, second largest citrus exporting industry in the world, uh, they're fully aware of what's going on in South Korea, and they're real keen to get their hands on this variety and, and produce it and market it to Eastern Asia. We met very recently with a, a company from China that likewise said, "You know, this is this is good tasting." The Chinese market understands that grapefruit is healthy and we should eat it, but they don't like to eat it again because of the sharp bitterness and and acidity. And here you have something with lower acid, higher sugar, and you know the ratio is 25-30 percent higher than ordinary grapefruit. So that translates into real taste. And you'll appreciate this with your your interest in in volatiles that enhance flavor perception. Uh, we're pretty confident that there are some volatile aromatics in this variety that enhance the perception of sweetness. And what better way to take a break than end with perceptions of sweetness? Uh, that's Dr. Fred Gemitter, who's a citrus breeder from the Citrus Research and Education Center at the University of Florida's Lake Alfred Research Station. And we'll be right back with more Talking Biotech. Hello, Talking Biotechers. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'd like to turn your attention to the iTunes review page. If you haven't already done it, please go there and write a review of this podcast. Throw us a few stars. I'll wait right here. Ah, just do it later. But the idea is simple. The idea is an opportunity to raise the awareness of this particular podcast. You see... We're already doing very well in the featured science category, actually scoring better than some major podcasts in science. So thank you for that. But we always can do better. You see, it's absolutely true that the way to move innovation to application is to get people fired up about new technology, dispelling the fears and raising hopes that new technology can save lives and even save the planet even put a few shekels in the pockets of the 1% of people, our farmers and ranchers, that work from dawn to dusk every day to feed us. It's our way of doing a little bit to ensure their equal access to agricultural innovations. So whether it's biotech and genetic engineering, or newest varieties from breeding, we can make a difference in helping to share the awareness of what agricultural products really are. So head on over to iTunes, fill out the review, tell a friend, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And so we'll resume the interview with Dr. Fred Gemitter, um, this time talking about the disease that's now crippling the Florida citrus industry. Back to Dr. Gemitter. So you mentioned uh, the disease Wang Long Bing. Uh, could you tell uh, tell us about what this disease is and how it's spread and why it's so devastating to our industry and now looks like heading over to California? Huang Longbing, HLB, citrus greening. Um, this is a, a disease that's presumably caused by a bacterium that has not yet been cultured, so we can't complete Cox postulates, but it's always there. So you know, we're pretty certain that's what it is. Um, this bacterium is moved about by an insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. 
Uh, those psyllids were first found in Florida in 1998. And at the time, uh, most people said, well, we know this insect moves HLB, but we don't have HLB in Florida, so it's not a problem. Big mistake. Because seven years later, 2005, the first symptomatic tree was found in Homestead, near Miami, actually. Um, and the, the DPI, the state regulatory agency, said, uh-oh, we better look. And they looked across the peninsula, and they found that the disease was spread all the way to the west coast. And they moved up the east coast of Florida, and they found it was up as far as Fort Pierce. So in those seven years where we were assuming we had no problem, the problem spread. Already at that point in time, some of the orchards, some of the groves had 25% of their trees were symptomatic. And the pathologist came in and said, well, what you have to do is remove those symptomatic trees. And the farmer said, well, that's one out of every four trees. You're asking me to cut my production by 25%. That hurts. And then the epidemiologist said, well, for actually, for every one tree you see in, with symptoms, there are probably at least three others already infected without symptoms. So if you're 25% infected and you're removing one symptomatic tree and three others, you've just removed 100% of your grove. And the citrus farmers said, no, we're not going to do that, uh, which is understandable on the one hand, but from the big picture point of view, it led us to the situation we're in today, where essentially 100% of the citrus groves in Florida have Huanglongbing. It's difficult to find a tree without Huanglongbing. The insect inoculates the plant. It can be two or three years before you see the symptoms develop, and in the meantime, those populations are moving it all around. The psyllid is very fertile. They have short generation times, and uh, that wasn't me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know every time I hear a car like that, I think I could fix that. <laughs> they do that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, of course. They, they know where you are. <laughs> um, so... That's the situation with the disease. Um, everything is susceptible that we know. Some things are more sensitive than others. Others are, are quite tolerant. Uh, oranges and grapefruit, unfortunately, are very sensitive. Uh, lemons are something that can become infected easily, but they develop symptoms in the fall. In the spring, if you've taken good care of the trees horticulturally, boom, they come back and they produce a nice crop. Uh, some of our first varieties released from our program, one known as LB89 or Sugar Bell, uh, is one that's, that's just incredibly tolerant to this disease, and there's more and more interest in growing that. Unfortunately, it's not a sweet orange, so it doesn't go into our juice business, but there it is. And so, as a breeder, what are some of the ways that you try to attack the problem of disease resistance using, because I don't know if there's, you mentioned maybe lemon has some tolerance, and are, are there examples of wild resistance that can be bred in if we had time? Or, you know, what are your approaches? Or is it really just going back through the uh, years and years of groves that you've accumulated and um, the trees that you have available to just look for that one in a million that actually survived? Well, that's obviously our, our first approach because it's there. And there's an urgency in the industry with two-thirds of the crop gone over the past 10 years. Uh, they can't really wait for scientists to do long, elegant research projects and, and produce the product. So that is our first step. What's out there that's holding up right now? I haven't talked at all about rootstock breeding, 
but Jude and I and Bill have been involved in rootstock breeding over all these years. And, you know, we have uh, 75 or 80 field trials planted throughout the state of Florida, rootstock trials. And as this disease has washed over the entire state like a tsunami, you know, we're looking to see what's, what's still standing. And uh, there are some rootstocks that support um, more productive, less affected trees. So they, they decline more slowly. They continue to produce good fruit for a longer period of time. And so that's kind of the, the first frontline hope that we're looking at. So just to jump in on that, the rootstock is really just a separate tree that's bred for its characteristics, and then that's grafted onto a scion, which is really the upper part of the tree that you see. And really what it... What the advantage to using this approach is is it allows you to really mesh the part of the tree that's in contact with the earth and soil, which means it's resistance to nematodes, it's um, other characteristics maybe, and then uh, attached to a part on top, which has maybe more effect on the fruit quality directly. And then the rootstock does have other weird effects in interactions with the scion. So it's it, when you think about just breeding a tree, as hard as that is, you're actually breeding two parts of a tree that then have to be tested if they work well together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of like marriage. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, back to the, the, the line of thought here. The, the rootstocks, in fact, are the first products that are coming out of our breeding program that growers are, are, are looking to. Um, we've released 17 rootstocks from our breeding program. Ten years ago, we would never do this because we have incomplete information. To release a rootstock, you really should have 20 or 30 years' experience with it in different locations with different cyan cultivars and see consistency over that period of time. But greening HLB has changed everything. Um, the current commercial rootstocks, for the most part, are failing. Uh, we bring citrus growers out to our experimental plots. They look at our trees, and they see uh, three trees in a row that just look outstanding when everything else is, is dead and dying. And, uh, well, I'm going to plant 100 acres next year. I want to plant that rootstock. But we don't know anything about that rootstock, we'll say. And the grower says, what do you need to know? Um, well, we don't know how it yields. And I had one grower literally tell me, Doc, that tree, you see that? That's yield that tree over there, that's not yield. You don't need statistics for this. And so they went to the funding agencies, they went to the university and said, look, you need to encourage these guys to release these things. And so we have, because it's a, it's a desperate situation. And now that they're out there, people are asking the questions, well, which one of these 17 is really the best? So we're back into this mindset of, you know, we should be doing all this testing, um, but we don't have time to be doing all this testing. So that's kind of the short term. And, you know, some new cultivars that we've released, uh, another mandarin that's, that's just been released out of our program. Uh, the original tree is 10 years old in the field. It's never developed symptoms. And no matter how many times I've tested it, we haven't been able to detect the bacterium in it. It's surrounded by infected trees. So is this real or is this just luck? We don't know, but nonetheless, the quality of the fruit from this new variety is exceptional for fresh markets. So growers are jumping on that one and going with that. And we, of course, have our LB89 Sugar Bell. Um, but going forward, you know, I've been involved with the international citrus genome community. Uh, genome sequencing projects, and we've been looking at disease resistance and genomics 
genetic control of disease resistance over all the years, and we have several projects underway right now you know, where we're trying to understand the host-pathogen interaction in the case of, of HLB and to identify critical control points in, in the plant, in the genetics of the plant, whereby we might be able to do something to make the trees less sensitive, more tolerant, perhaps even resistant to the disease. So that's uh, a part of the future. It's not breeding by hybridization, um, but it's a genetic approach that we and many other researchers are, are working hard at. So, Fred, I guess it's kind of a closing question. Um, I'm going to ask you to take out the crystal ball. And you've got uh, this citrus disease that's rampant in Florida. It's devastating. And it's hard for me to give a listener an idea of how bad this really is. I mean, it's an amazing thing to drive through these areas and see some of them just destroyed with a big for sale sign with a bunch of skeletal trees. Um, The disease is in California now. It's pretty much worldwide from what I understand. What do you think is the future of citrus, say, in 10 years in Florida and worldwide? Wow. Crystal balls are always dangerous. Um, I think 10 years from now, we will see that the Florida industry is still in existence. I mean, there are many who have predicted its demise. The original predictions were it should be gone five years ago. Um, We're definitely on the ropes. There's no question about that. And and they are hard times. And not only are you seeing the skeletal remains of trees, but there are real people, real families uh, who are losing their employment, losing their life work, not only the farmers, but all the people who work to support the industry. Uh, So that's, that's a serious thing. I... There are programs in place to encourage farmers to plant more oranges, uh, to keep the production going, to keep it up as long as possible while different solutions play out or or don't play out. So I think we're going to see the juice business continue for some time. However, with smaller crops, um, the infrastructure just is... It's no longer economically feasible to have eight or ten juice plants operating only two months out of the year they're all losing money and so we're seeing big players drop out of the game but you're seeing some other big players in the growing side and even in the processing side still trying to encourage this this thing to keep going and and replant Uh, so i think you know there's there's hope there Um, there's a lot of things going on with other therapies there's talk about antimicrobial therapy and some chemicals that are used now routinely on apples and pears may be able to be used on, on citrus, and preliminary work indicates they'll, they'll be beneficial. Not a solution long-term, but something to keep us going, and that's really what the industry is looking for, something to keep going. But it's not ever going to be, I don't think, what it was 10 years ago you know, or 20 years ago. We had over 650,000 acres of citrus in Florida. I, I don't see that coming back. I don't see the, the very large crops... One thing I do see happening, well, several things, while we have the crystal ball out, uh, there's been some interest in lemons in Florida, not for fresh market necessarily, but perhaps for processing. You know, some of the lemon products, particularly lemon peel oil, are incredibly valuable commodities. And there's an interest, I think, in some quarters to have lemons planted uh, to be able to support 
the processing plants that exist there. If they can't have enough oranges to keep themselves busy, they can spend some of their time processing lemons, and, and that adds to the, to the bottom line. Um, I think the fresh business in Florida is in a really good position to have a bit of a, rena- a renaissance. Um, you know, we have the closest access to the, one of the largest markets, you know, the eastern U.S., eastern Canada, uh, logistically moving fruit and so on. We now have varieties from our program that exceed the expectations of consumers for easy, ease of peeling, seedlessness, uh, the quality of the eating experience. Um, and, and some of those appear to be very tolerant of the disease. So I think there's really some good opportunities. And even some of the biggest juice company, uh, juice producing companies, that, I should say growers that grow oranges for juice, uh, are planting these fresh fruit varieties or playing around with them and looking at them because they see, you know, here's another option. I get phone calls frequently from farmers who tell me, you know, I've done nothing but grow oranges my whole life. I never thought I'd get into the fresh fruit business. But I have 100 acres, and I'm losing money on everything else, and my neighbor's growing some fresh fruit, and he's not losing money. I'm, I'm going to get into this game. So th- this is something that's coming and building, and I, and I think that's, that's going to grow. Well, that's a, that's a really positive outlook, and I, I think that you know the folks we have at University of Florida always they never never fail to impress me, and kind of the resilience of our growers and um, our industry and the people involved in our industry um, always are. Uh, in, even in the darkest of times here, very optimistic and forward-thinking and always looking for solutions, and it's been one of the most exciting parts about uh, kind of growing up in the position I am as a scientist to be watching you and, and the others uh, deal with these um, immense problems with all the tools that um, agriculture and genetics give us. And so that's been a really exciting time. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's really uh, been exciting to le- you know learn more about it myself. Every time we talk about it, I get more. And I think it provides a listener with a really nice idea of that stuff that's in their glass every day and uh, maybe gives them a little bit more perspective and uh, maybe helps them even uh, savor it a little bit more in the time ahead. So thank you very much, Fred. My pleasure. So that's uh, Fred Gemitter, uh, Professor Gemitter, who is uh, at University of Florida in the Citrus Research and Education Center down in Lake Alfred, Florida. Down in Lake Alfred, Florida. That's uh, Fred Gemitter. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Biotech Podcast. And the Citrus story, it's a story about a disease, but it's a story about people. It's a story about the next wave of fruits and at the glacial speed of tree crop genetics. And I hope that you really do appreciate you know, what that means. To make the next apple, to make the next uh, cherries, the hazelnuts, the almonds, uh, all of the things that come from trees require these uh, decades-long visions. Uh, the crops that uh, someone like Dr. Gemitter, the crosses he makes today with his vision for tomorrow, won't be here for several decades. So thank you, Dr. Gemitter, for joining us today, and thank you for listening. And remember, if you learn something new, please tell a friend. Uh, Please fill out a review on iTunes. Think about the farmers that grow our food, the food you have, and think about those who don't have anything. And think about the people who are working hard every day to improve fruits and vegetables, make things better for farmers, consumers, the environment, and the need. 
Thank you for listening to Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.